In the early 1960s, a former U.S. Navy patrol boat left the Florida Keys under the cover of darkness. On board were machine guns, two small speedboats, and enough small arms to start a revolution. Or, in this case, and one. The vessel and its passengers were headed for Cuba to kill Fidel Castro and topple his regime. A middle-aged mafioso named Johnny Roselli leaned over the side of the ship, lost in thought. His life was certainly different than a few years before. Back then, his only concern was how much money he could steal from casinos. Now, he was about to overthrow a government. He imagined his CIA handlers cheering him on as he returned to the U.S. a hero. The engine slowed to a stop and Roselli checked his watch. Time to go. He climbed into one of the speedboats and set out for the Cuban mainland to rendezvous with his contacts. Suddenly, though, a loudspeaker blaring threats in Spanish echoed through the night. Roselli felt his stomach sink. It was the Cuban government. The words were followed by the sound of machine gun fire. Bullets ripped into the hull, narrowly missing Roselli. He gunned the engine, but the deck quickly filled up with water. The Cubans were closing in fast, and his ship was going down. Roselli had only one option left. He dove into the water and swam like his life depended on it. The other speedboat circled back to pick him up just in the nick of time. Though the mission had clearly failed, Roselli swore he'd be back. He promised the CIA he could kill Castro, and he wasn't going to let them down. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the Mafia, also known as La Cosa Nostra, or LCN. Last time, we followed its rise from a small cabal of Sicilian merchants to one of the most powerful organizations in America. We also looked at some of the U.S. government's attempts to stamp it out, with mixed success. Surprising as it sounds, the Mafia's relationship with Uncle Sam wasn't always antagonistic. So today, we'll explore a few conspiracy theories, including one claiming that the U.S. Navy teamed up with the Mafia to win World War II. We'll also investigate if the CIA hired the mob to assassinate the Cuban dictator, Fidel Castro. And finally, we'll determine whether the Mafia was able to put one of their own into the Oval Office. Spies, presidents, and hitmen. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. The FBI considers the mafia to be one of the greatest threats to American society, Right up there with MS-13 and Russian organized crime. For over 100 years, the U.S. government and LCN have been at each other's throats. But that doesn't mean they never joined forces to defeat a greater foe. In December 1941, when a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor shook America to its core, Congress declared war on Japan, Italy, and Nazi Germany. The government couldn't bring down such a vast and terrifying alliance on its own, though. So it looked to the underworld for aid. As the old saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number one. An alliance between the mafia and the U.S. military helped the Allied powers win World War II. Even before the U.S. officially entered the war, the military's intelligence agencies were on high alert for signs of Nazi sabotage. In June 1941, the FBI arrested 33 Nazi spies in New York City. When he heard about this, Adolf Hitler reportedly flew into a rage and ordered even more agents to America. Then, in February 1942, A troop carrier called the USS Normandy burned down while anchored in New York Harbor. Historians now agree it was probably an accident, but at the time, Nazi sabotage was widely suspected. 
Even more alarming was the possibility that someone was sharing the positions of Allied vessels. In the first few months of war, Nazi U-boats sank dozens of merchant ships bound for Europe. Naval intelligence believed the leaks came from Nazi operatives posing as New York City fishermen. However, the city docks were controlled by the Mafia. When naval officers went down there to ask questions, they were met with suspicion and silence. Commander Charles Haffenden realized that in order to root out the enemy, he needed the Mafia's help. Haffenden wasn't bothered in the least. His mission was to stop the Nazis and win the war, whatever it took. If he had to ask the devil for a favor to save American lives, he'd do it. His first step was to reach out to Joseph Socks Lanza, the mafioso in charge of the docks. He made it clear that Lanza wouldn't be paid or get any special favors from the police. Other criminals would have walked out of the room right then and there. Fortunately, Lanza was a patriot. Lanza agreed to do everything in his power to help the Navy catch enemy spies. He created a network of captains, deckhands, and union bosses that reported all suspicious activity. In turn, he passed that information along to Haffenden. And when the commander wanted naval officers undercover at the docks, Lanza supplied them union cards and gave them intros with captains. The shipheads let the officers on board as a personal favor to Lanza. But as middle management, Lanza's reach was limited. It was clear that to cover all of New York, Haffenden needed the help of a capo, someone who could snap their fingers and make all the mafiosi stand at attention. There was only one man who fit the bill, Lucky Luciano, the boss of bosses. This was easier said than done, since Lucky was upstate, serving year six of what might be a 50-year prison sentence. And no one knew where his political loyalties lay. He was certainly no fan of the government. To get him on board, Haffenden required an ally more powerful than Sox Lanza. Fortunately, one of Lanza's associates was Meyer Lansky, the Jewish mobster who rose to the top with Lucky Luciano, and Lansky had every reason to support the commander's cause. Lansky's family fled Eastern Europe to escape pogroms, violent anti-Semitic riots that forced millions of Jewish people into exile. In 1935, when Lansky heard about a Nazi meeting in Manhattan, he decided to drop by for a visit. Lansky and a dozen Jewish wise guys from his crew showed up with baseball bats and iron bars. They chased the fascists into the street and threw a few of them out the windows. So when Sox Lanza told Lansky he was going to be hunting Nazi spies, Lansky was quick to give his blessing and pay Lucky a visit. In May 1942, Lansky waited in a small prison office. When Lucky was escorted in by a guard, Lansky made his pitch. The old boss had his reservations, but he trusted Lansky and listened courteously. In the end, Lucky agreed. With his approval, the Mafia was going to war. 
With Lucky now calling the shots, information flooded in about fascist spies and subversive talk, and results came swift. In June 1942, Four Nazi saboteurs washed up on Long Island, armed with stacks of explosives. According to Meyer Lansky, it was information his team provided that led to the German network's swift capture. And when dock workers refused to talk to investigators, the mob reminded them of the rules. The mafia even hired naval officers as waiters in their casinos and clubs so they could eavesdrop on potential spies. As the war pressed on, Commander Haffenden became an invaluable resource to American counterintelligence. Still, protecting New York was only one part of the war effort. Across the Atlantic, Allied forces drove their Nazi foes out of North Africa in a bloody series of pitched battles. By 1943, they prepared to strike through the Mediterranean at the so-called soft underbelly of Europe. This meant confronting the fascist dictator Benito Mussolini directly. But before Allied troops set foot on Italy's mainland, they had to step over the large island to its south, Sicily. This was a huge undertaking, and they needed all the help they could get. The military wanted maps, intel on enemy troops, and trustworthy guides. Fortunately, Commander Haffenden had access to some of the most powerful, well-connected Sicilians on the planet. He wondered if they would show the same zeal for capturing Sicily as they did for stopping Nazi spies. As it was, most of La Cosa Nostra hated Mussolini even more than Hitler. When he came to power in 1922, Mussolini quickly set about eroding the institutions that had allowed organized crime to flourish. He knew that most of Italy was sick of corruption, so in a bold move, he declared war on the mafia. Mussolini brought the police down like a hammer. He rounded up hundreds of suspected mafiosi and jailed them, completely disregarding their civil liberties. Their trials were little more than kangaroo courts where the verdict was predetermined. Guilty. The onslaught of the crackdown was so fierce that many Sicilians, mafiosi and civilians alike, went into hiding or fled the country. A number made their way to America. From across the sea, they watched as their former homes were trampled under the boots of a fascist dictator. But the war meant the tide was turning. Dozens of Italian-Americans eagerly passed along information about Sicily they thought might help, including descriptions of the coastline and advice on who to trust on the island. Lucky actually offered to go to Sicily and parachute in with the troops, but that was dismissed as a non-starter. The government wasn't going to release its biggest criminal, even to help the war effort. Still, the intelligence he and his cronies provided made its way to the very top of the military chain. It was reviewed by none other than General Dwight Eisenhower, then the supreme commander of all U.S. forces. On July 10, 1943, a massive armada deposited 150,000 Allied troops on the beaches of Sicily. 
It took over a month for British and American forces to drive the German and Italian battalions out of Sicily, presumably with help from Mafia guides. After that, the Allies went on to take all of Italy. It's possible that the Allies won World War II with the help of Lucky and his merry band of mobsters. After all, in 1946, Governor Dewey, the same Dewey who'd indicted Lucky nearly 10 years earlier, commuted Lucky's prison sentence. Seems like Dewey thought his help had been instrumental, so he set Lucky free. But some people think that Lucky's importance has been greatly exaggerated. Historian Selwyn Robb claimed that the so-called intelligence Lucky's men provided about Sicily wasn't actually helpful. It was little more than postcards from relatives back home. The myth of noble gangsters saving America was just propaganda from the mobsters themselves. It's true, a lot of the details of this story come directly from Lucky and Meyer Lansky. But their cooperation with Commander Haffenden was verified by an independent investigation. Yes, but the results were not. A Navy intelligence captain reported that only 40% of the so-called trusted contacts Haffenden provided were reliable. That's worse than a coin toss. Plus, the commander mostly kept his sources and methods confidential, so we can't be sure if the mob's assistance actually accomplished anything. There's the four Nazi spies they caught on Long Island. Except there's no evidence to support Meyer Lansky's claim that his people contributed to the arrests. When you're talking about a top-secret intelligence operation, we shouldn't be surprised when parts of the story are a little opaque. Commander Haffenden believed in Lucky, as did Governor Dewey and General Eisenhower. That's good enough for me. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the most believable, I give this conspiracy theory an 8. I'm not as certain. Clearly, the Mafia helped, but there doesn't seem to be much evidence they actually changed the course of the war, or even made a dent. Without that proof, this theory is a five for me. While we may never know just how useful La Cosa Nostra was as an intelligence partner to the government, we can say that the Mafia wasn't exactly built for espionage. Violence was their stock in trade, and it wasn't long before Uncle Sam made good use of it. Fifteen years later, the rise of a communist foothold in Cuba threatened to send America and the Soviet Union into nuclear war. So once again, the government embraced its dark side and hatched an assassination plot. Coming up, the CIA makes the mob an offer they can't refuse. We all have grief and traumas in our life, but that doesn't mean they have to control us. Hi, I'm David Kessler, host of Healing with David Kessler. For most of us, our instinct is to hide our pain and never discuss it. But as a grief and loss expert, I'm here to tell you, without a doubt, that talking is healing. Anger, abuse, guilt, shame. They're all part of grief and trauma. Healing with David Kessler gets to the root of these issues. 
shares tips for persevering and reveals that behind every dark emotion lies wisdom and hope. Loss and trauma may seem overwhelming, but healing is possible, and I'm here to help. Healing with David Kessler is a Spotify original from ParCast. Hear a new episode every Tuesday, free and only on Spotify. And now, back to the story. After World War II ended, the U.S. Navy and the New York Mafia dissolved their uneasy alliance and retreated to their separate corners. The mob focused on building its international criminal empire, and the U.S. government turned its attention to Soviet Russia, which it saw as an existential threat. In 1959, though, a new enemy emerged just 90 miles off the coast of Florida, communist leader Fidel Castro. President Eisenhower wanted Castro gone, so the CIA came up with an outrageous plan. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number two. The CIA secretly teamed up with La Cosa Nostra to assassinate Fidel Castro. In the 1950s, the Mafia enjoyed a fruitful relationship with Cuba's corrupt military dictator, Fulgencio Batista. Mob investors like Meyer Lansky poured millions of dollars into Havana to build posh casinos and hotels. In exchange for letting the Mafia run wild, Batista accepted huge payoffs. One wise guy claimed that Lansky gave Batista a briefcase with $100,000 in cash every time he visited the island. Under the Mafia's hand, Havana became a favorite destination for American politicians and celebrities. They called this slice of paradise the Latin Las Vegas. Behind the glitzy bars and sparkling fountains, the mob moved mountains of cocaine and heroin en route to America. It's estimated that the gambling and drug trades in Cuba were worth over $100 million a year. It was a sprawling operation that ignored the local population, who starved and died at the hands of Batista's uniformed thugs. 1959 brought sweeping change, though. After years of fighting, Fidel Castro marched into Havana and overthrew Batista's government. Revolutionaries burned down the mob's casinos and sent their owners fleeing to the States. Thousands of upper- and middle-class Cubans left the country, abandoning their homes and businesses. Many ended up in Florida, where they had to start over from scratch. The news hit Washington like a brick to the face. The notion of a communist country only a stone's throw away from home was unthinkable. It was like the Soviet Union had a knife to America's throat, and Castro was the blade. President Eisenhower called an emergency meeting to discuss options. Some in the room wanted to send in the troops, but Eisenhower was reluctant. He wanted Castro overthrown, but if the USSR believed America was behind the coup, it could spark World War III. Eisenhower left it to Vice President Nixon to figure out a different solution. So Nixon asked the nation's top intelligence leaders for options. 
According to information presented in author Lamar Waldron's book, Watergate, The Hidden History, they soon presented one he loved, assassinate Fidel Castro and replace him with someone more amenable to the U.S. If such a plan were to be carried out, the CIA needed a cold-blooded killer who couldn't be traced back to Washington in the event that the operation went south. And the mafia seemed like the most logical place to look. They reached out to former FBI agent Robert Mayhew, a private security contractor they'd used for dirty jobs like blackmail in the past. Once the details were settled, he reached out to his old mobster pal, handsome Johnny Roselli. Roselli looked a little like a middle-aged movie star with bronze skin and expensive tastes, but he wasn't just a pretty face. He was mafia upper management, and he could get Mayhew in the room with LCN leaders. Even though he was Italian by birth, Roselli considered himself a patriot. So much so that he actually turned down Mayhew's offer of $150,000 for the job. Since this was about national security, he'd do it for free. An operation this large, though, would need a sign-off from above. So Roselli pitched the idea to his boss, Sam Giancana. As it was, Giancana had taken a huge hit when Castro took over. If whacking Castro meant he could reopen his Cuban casinos, then he'd be foolish not to protect his bottom line and lend a hand. So in September 1960, he arranged a meeting at Miami Beach's Fountain Blue Hotel. In attendance were Roselli, Mayhew, a CIA officer, and Santo Traficante Jr., the boss in charge of Florida. Traficante was the one with all the Cuban contacts, so his help was vital. And he was no friend of Castro either. After the Havana casinos were torched, he was nearly executed by one of Castro's firing squads. He escaped by fleeing the country. Inside a private VIP room, they schemed about the best way to eliminate their enemy. Mayhew wanted Castro to die in a hail of bullets, but the mobsters argued for something a little more subtle, like poison. The CIA could work with that. They had a laboratory filled with deadly chemicals and an expert chemist assigned to the task. After months of trial and error, they settled on a botulinum toxin, a poison so lethal that one gram of the stuff could kill nearly a million people. In March 1961, Mayhew handed a batch of botulinum pills to Roselli, who passed them along to a couple of Cuban exiles, along with a briefcase full of cash. Getting the pills into Cuba was easy. Traficante, who facilitated the deal, still had an active drug smuggling business. However, actually dosing the dictator would prove to be much harder. Castro's bodyguards were unrelenting. The assassin made several attempts to slip the poison into Castro's food, but he couldn't even get close. When the Cuban security services grew suspicious, the would-be hitman left the country. Roselli promised the CIA they'd try again, and they did, over and over. He personally led boats filled with armed Cuban exiles to the mainland, and was repeatedly beaten back by Castro's forces. 
His crews tried everything they could think of, including more poison, machine guns, sniper rifles, and bazookas. And on the few occasions that they did think they'd finally poisoned Castro, they soon found that their target was actually one of his many doppelganger bodyguards. Despite the mountains of cash being funneled to the mafia, only a handful of people knew about these missions. And when JFK replaced Eisenhower as president in 1961, it seems he was kept in the dark. This go-it-alone attitude led to clashes between the Kennedy administration and the CIA in the early 1960s. Several senior officials who knew about the operation resigned, while others were reassigned. That effectively ended the CIA's contract with La Cosa Nostra, but it seems Roselli and his mafia pals kept going on their own. Many saw themselves as patriotic heroes. However, none of them ever succeeded. Castro lived on. Roselli would have continued the charge, but an indictment in 1967 changed his priorities. Now, fighting for his own freedom, Roselli had his lawyer leak the story to the press. He hoped news of the CIA's unholy alliance would reduce his time behind bars. Even more details emerged in 1975 during the Church Committee hearings. The Senate's investigation into the legality of operations conducted by U.S. intelligence agencies revealed how the CIA schemed to assassinate and overthrow other leftist leaders in South America. Among the witnesses were Mayhew and Roselli, who went on record about the plots to kill Castro. While Mayhew got a happy retirement, the other conspirators weren't so lucky. In 1975, Sam Giancana was shot in the head while grilling sausages in his basement. A year later, Johnny Roselli's body was found decomposing in a barrel off the coast of Miami. And as for Fidel Castro, he lived to a ripe old age of 90. He once said, quote, If surviving assassination attempts were a sport, I would win the gold medal, end quote. When it comes to confirming whether the Mafia conspired with the CIA to kill Castro, the evidence is pretty plain. This is a rare instance when a conspiracy theory has actually been vetted in advance, in this case, by Congress. In 2007, nearly 50 years after it started, the CIA formally admitted that it had collaborated with Roselli and Giancana. On a scale of 1 to 10, I rate this a 10. I agree, 10 out of 10. The CIA's plan to snuff out the dictator failed miserably, but not for lack of trying. They chose La Cosa Nostra for the job. The mobsters just couldn't finish it. That said, it's possible the agency made the wrong choice because it was influenced by someone high up in the government. Vice President Richard Nixon. Maybe his judgment was a little clouded. And maybe he wasn't just friends with the wise guys in the Mafia. Perhaps he was actually one of them. Coming up, the possibility that the mob put Nixon in the White House. And now back to the story. We now know that President Richard Nixon wasn't afraid to cross moral lines when he had to. 
His political opponents called him Tricky Dick because he always fought to win, and he fought dirty. The fact that he used ex-CIA cronies to burglarize the Watergate complex says a lot about his character. But maybe it was more than political ruthlessness. It's possible that the reason he was so dastardly was because he took his marching orders straight from the Mafia. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number three. With Richard Nixon, La Cosa Nostra put a mafioso in the Oval Office and then took control of the highest power in the nation. That's a big claim, even for a disgraced ex-president. But if it's true, we should be able to find proof linking him to LCN long before his impeachment proceedings. Richard Nixon once famously declared he wasn't a crook. And at least he didn't start out that way. He was an exceptionally bright teenager, a real straight shooter with a tremendous work ethic and a passion for history. After graduating from Duke, he even tried to sign up for the FBI as a special agent. Eventually, Nixon became a lawyer, then served honorably in the Navy during World War II. But when the war ended, he found himself back in California with no house, no car, and a family to support. He was drawn to politics, and when the Republican Party asked him to run for Congress in 1945, he agreed. To fund the campaign, he solicited help from oil companies and the mafia-connected billionaire Howard Hughes. However, according to one oil executive, Nixon believed he couldn't survive on the measly pay of a congressman. So he diverted some of his donations to a slush fund for himself. The Nixon campaign apparently doctored its books to make it look like Nixon was bringing in less money than he was. And much of the cash that he did spend on official business was used to pull dirty tricks, like suggesting to voters that his opponent was a communist. It was Nixon's cleverness that attracted the lawyer Murray Chotner, his soon-to-be campaign manager. Chotner had a Machiavellian approach to politics. He believed in winning at any cost, and Nixon knew he could deliver. It didn't seem to bother Nixon that Chotner's clients included notorious mobsters like Mickey Cohen, the mob boss of Los Angeles. It may have even been a bonus since Chotner was eager to use his underworld connections to raise money. Perhaps Chotner convinced Mickey Cohen that supporting Nixon would give the mobster leverage over an up-and-coming politician. When Nixon ran for Senate in 1950, Cohen hosted a fundraiser with his mob friends and raised $75,000. He even paid for Nixon's campaign headquarters. Cohen wasn't the only mafia associate to take an interest in the young Republican from California. Meyer Lansky reportedly became friends with Nixon during one of the congressman's visits to his casino in Havana. From that point on, whenever Nixon visited Cuba, Lansky always calmed his hotel room. But the closest of Nixon's shady friends was a Cuban-American named Charles B.B. Rebozo. After allegedly meeting in Florida in 1947, they formed an unusual bond. Beebe was nothing like Nixon. He was charming and outgoing. He liked to drink, golf, and chase women, none of which appealed to Nixon. 
The senator was a bit of a loner, but B.B. saw through his shyness, and they became extremely close. The two remained loyal to each other for the rest of their lives. B.B. showered Nixon's children with gifts, and they called him Uncle B.B. However, B.B. wasn't some innocent playmate. He was a powerful man who was close to several LCN capos, including Santo Traficante Jr. and Meyer Lansky. He also had several real estate holdings which may have been used to launder mob money. Being close with Bibi came with lots of benefits. One time in Havana, when Nixon supposedly lost $50,000 at a casino, Bibi covered every penny. Plus, Bibi also apparently let Nixon share in his questionable dealings. Nixon bought two plots of land through Bibi for $50,000, one-third their actual value, and invested heavily in Lansky's casino, where Nixon was a frequent guest. Nixon allegedly made boatloads of cash from these illicit ventures. According to a former partner at the bank, Nixon deposited more than $35 million into a secret Swiss account between 1971 and 1972. If Nixon had mafia friends that made him that much money, it stands to reason he'd owe them. As we know, the mafia values loyalty above all else. Nixon likely knew he'd one day need to return the favor. Nixon's mob ties could explain why he was so hardcore about assassinating Castro. Some of his supposed friends lost a ton of income when Cuba became communist, and maybe he did too. But investing in mafia-linked businesses was just the tip of the iceberg. There were also allegations that Nixon took huge bribes from them as well. In 1960, a New Orleans LCN boss is said to have given Nixon $500,000 in cash packed into a suitcase for his failing presidential campaign. Jimmy Hoffa, president of the Teamsters Union, acted as middleman, and one of Hoffa's aides witnessed the transaction. At the time, Hoffa was under indictment for other mob activity. After the money changed hands, Nixon suspiciously had the Department of Justice delay his prosecution, possibly as a thank you. Clearly, Nixon took care of his wise guy friends. While he was vice president, the Department of Justice shut down an IRS investigation into Meyer Lansky. In another case, Nixon blocked the deportation of one of Chotner's Cosa Nostra clients. After pumping funds into his bank account for years, the Mafia seemed to really exert their leverage once he was elected president in 1968. After his victory, the DOJ seemingly eased off on its investigations into organized crime. He also shut down deportation proceedings against Johnny Roselli, who tried so hard to assassinate Fidel Castro. The list goes on. When an LCN capo was sentenced to two years for assault, Nixon's attorney general reduced the punishment to just six months. And in 1971, Nixon granted clemency to Jimmy Hoffa, who was in prison for jury tampering. Supposedly, the mafia paid Nixon a $300,000 bribe for the favor. Cash ruled everything around Nixon, and most of it was dirty. 
One of his biggest financial contributors was the mafia-connected billionaire Howard Hughes. Hughes secretly funneled $100,000 to Nixon through B.B. Rebozo. Almost half of that money went to renovate Nixon's house in Florida in violation of several campaign finance laws. Ironic, considering that Nixon was known for being tough on crime. Even before Reagan, he declared a war on drugs and used the government to arrest huge numbers of primarily minority narcotics users. One of Nixon's top advisors later said that the real reason for the crackdown was to criminalize two of Nixon's political enemies, the anti-war left and black Americans. The whistleblower said Nixon's directive allowed police to disrupt both communities, to raid their homes and arrest their leaders under the pretense of stopping crime. Yet major narcotics traffickers like Sam Giancana were largely left untouched. Nixon even helped Pepsi establish a soda factory in Laos that eventually became a drug production front. The facility supposedly operated as one of the largest heroin producers in Southeast Asia, where the mafia was known to do business. However, as far as the factory, there isn't any proof Nixon knew that was happening. That's true, but it seems like more than sheer coincidence that Nixon's mobster friends yet again came out on top. For me, that's more evidence that this theory is true. Nixon was controlled by the Mafia. I'm not so sure. Yes, he received a payoff from Howard Hughes, but the sources claiming that Nixon took bribes from senior Mafia capos aren't the most trustworthy. And for all the talk of suitcases filled with cash, no one actually saw Nixon accept any money, nor did they find his supposed Swiss bank accounts. I think he was too smart for that. He knew there were eyes on him, so he used go-betweens like B.B. Rebozo for the handoffs. But even if Nixon took money from mafiosi, that didn't mean he was one. He may have accepted loans from them and let his mafia connections get him better deals on real estate, but having ties to the mob is still a bit different than directly working for LCN. Without more proof that he actually took part in their illegal businesses, it's a stretch to call Nixon a made man. But that still means he was in their pocket. Not exactly. The mafia was far from his biggest donor. Most of his contributions came from corporate donors like oil companies and bankers. And although Howard Hughes had done business with the mafia, Hughes was decidedly independent. The money he gave Nixon was for his own purposes, not some grand Cosa Nostra scheme. It's also worth pointing out that many politicians use dirty money for their campaigns. For example, Sam Giancana claimed he gave a big donation to Nixon's political rival, John F. Kennedy. I don't know. JFK's guilt doesn't equal Nixon's innocence. Nixon was certainly corrupt, but there isn't enough evidence to say he answered to the mafia, let alone was one of them. On a scale of 1 to 10, I rate this theory a 3. They say you can judge a person by the company they keep. Nixon's best friends were mafia bankers and lawyers. He took dirty money, and the favors he did for Jimmy Hoffa are public record. For all those reasons, I rate this theory a 7. 
Nixon wasn't the first lawmaker to accept criminal cash, and he certainly wasn't the last. As we saw last episode, buying dirty politicians is part of La Cosa Nostra's business model. It's how they've managed to stay alive in spite of numerous government crackdowns. It's also why campaign finance laws are so important. Politicians promise to represent the voters. They'll take an oath to fight for the working-class family, but check their bank statements and who they've teamed up with, because some people in the government just might be working for another family altogether. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with an all-new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Xander Bernstein, with writing assistance by Ben Caro and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi, I'm David Kessler, host of Healing with David Kessler. As an expert on grief and loss, I know that healing doesn't mean forgetting or getting over the trauma. It means that the trauma no longer controls you. Join me each week for insights on how to find peace and learn how it's possible to persevere through anything. Healing with David Kessler is a Spotify original from Parcast. Listen every Tuesday, free and only on Spotify.